If you're able, would you remain standing as we read the word of the Lord? We're reading the Lamed portion of Psalm 119, that's verse 89 through 96. The letter Lamed also stands for the preposition to. So a lot of these verses just start with the word to. You know, the, the psalmist at some point you know, lost some creativity in a couple of these uh, sections and just, okay, let's just do what is easy here. And uh, pretty much almost every one of these verses start with the word to or the preposition to. This is the word of our Lord, Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You, You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We pray that as we consider your faithfulness to us, that you would open our hearts to see, indeed, that you are a faithful God who promised to be our God and that we would be your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we say, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The more I read the psalm and the more I read the scriptures as a whole, the more it becomes apparent to me how God's people in the Bible, those that uh, are authoring, humanly speaking, the words that we're reading today and the words that we read from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 clung to God's covenantal promises to them. The God's essential, central covenantal promise was what carried them through life. Their hope and their help weren't the things of this life. They didn't uh, put their confidence in the powers of this age. They would even sing together as they would ascend at least once a year, the holy hill of Zion, uh, coming from every part of the world, coming to worship the Lord in the in, in one of the three pilgrim feasts. They would ascend the hill singing Psalm 124, and that psalm finishes with these words, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That was the central theme, that is the central theme of the Bible, that our help is in the Lord, not on anything else. The thought that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity past, before there was even an inkling of creation, entered into a covenant of mutual love with one another, promising to one another that they would love each other for all eternity and then promising to, uh, to themselves that they would give to themselves a people, a people who would come from every language group, from every ethnic group. And that's going to be a multitude that could not be numbered. There was a promise that the people of God held on to dearly throughout the Scriptures. This intra-Trinitarian, intra-trinitarian covenant 
really encouraged our ancient brothers and sisters, as we see in this psalm, and encouraged them in the most difficult situations in life. The promise that is the center of every covenant in the Bible, culminating with the new covenant in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the promise that ties all the New Testaments together and gives hope to the people of God of all times, is the promise that God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will be your God and you will be His people. That is what ties everything in the Bible. That in eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted with themselves to create a people and then promise to that people, I will be your God and you're going to be my people. That's why the Lord Jesus, one of his names is Emmanuel, which means God with us, because that is the central promise of the Bible, that God is with his people. This psalm was born, as many of the psalms, out of suffering in the life of the psalmist. And suffering that he was able to endure because he could stand on the promise that God was his God. And he, body and soul, belonged to God. In verse 94 he says, I am yours. He knows that. I am yours. And he was able to go through the sufferings that he's going through, the afflictions, because he knew that God was his God. And that he belonged to to God, to him. And because God entered into this covenant with himself in eternity past, his word is settled for all generations. And this is a great hope for the believer, that the word of God is forever settled in heaven, that the promises of God don't change even when we change, uh, the hymn we sang right before uh, this uh, morning's sermon, As Great as Thy Faithfulness, is a great hymn, and it's true in what it says, but it's not 100%, doesn't embody the entire truth of God's faithfulness, because it ends by saying, Morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand has provided, Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, and then it finishes unto me. That's true. But that that is a related truth to the ultimate truth, that God's faithfulness is great to us because of him, not because of us. Because if God's faithfulness depended on us, if God's faithfulness depended on how faithful we are to him, they would have been gone already. Because we all fail. We all fail God. We all are unfaithful. And if you're here right now and you hear these words and you think, that's not true of me, then you do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ and your eternal destiny is hell, not fellowship with God forever. Because if you know who God is and you know who you are according to the scriptures and if you know that you cannot abide by God's word perfectly, that's what he demands of you. If you think that you are always faithful to the word of God, you have not come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And as we talk about the faithfulness of God, independent, independent of your faithfulness, my prayer is that God would change your heart and that you might come to know him as the ultimate fulfiller of all faithfulness, independent of you. The Apostle Paul tells Titus in 
um, the pastor in the, in, in the, the island of Crete, that even when his people are unfaithful, when, even when God's people are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And we see that in the word that has been forever settled in heaven. Look at verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The settled, we have a, in the Bible, we have the word of God who has been settled from all eternity and unto all eternity. To be settled means to stand firm, to not change. And what he's saying here is that the word of God is sure. It can be counted upon. Our Lord himself said that when he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The word that is established forever in heaven goes forth from God through the mouths of his people and accomplishes exactly what God has for it to accomplish. So through the prophet Isaiah, God says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word Return to me, so shall my word goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The word of God has been settled forever in heaven, yet God in his mercy saw fit through the mouths of his people to give us his word. So that's not just settled in heaven and we don't know about it, but it's given to us in a way that we can understand and then he equips and gifts his church with teachers who are also able to explain the word so that we can grow in it. It is established. It is settled. It is a, the abiding word of God. And that word is preached to us in the New Testament, as we're going to see in a little, moment, in a little later in First Timothy chapter 1. Peter, First Peter chapter 1, Peter says, The word of God has been established forever. And it's this word that now we preach to you in the gospel. The whole Bible has been settled forever in heaven and now is given to us. And notice that the New Testament authors thought that what they were saying, what we call the New Testament, was on par with the Old Testament. That's the entirety of the word of God. The entire Bible is settled in heaven from eternity past. And the Lord, in his goodness, gave it to us in history. You know that God did not owe, owe to us to reveal himself to us? You know that we still would owe obedience to him even if he never revealed himself to us? Because we, we can't not know God on our own because we are create, created things and God transcends this creation. Yet, he saw fit by, by way of covenant to reveal himself to us in his word. The word, the, the promise had been settled in heaven forever in history came to be ours. And God speaks to us through this word. An infallible, inerrant, sufficient, perfect Word of God. And because the Word is settled forever, the faithfulness that is revealed in the enduring Word is also settled forever. Look at verses 90 and 91. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances for, our, for all are your servants. And here again, we find a, a reference to God's covenant 
with himself and with his people. God's faithfulness endures to all generations. The beginning of verse 90 tells us. That's a reference back to the covenant with Abraham. When God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And then he reiterates that again when he comes and enters in the covenant with Israel under Moses, where Moses asks, Lord, show me your goodness. And that's how the Lord reveals his goodness to Moses by saying, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands of and the word generation is not there, but because of the parallel structure with the next verse, for thousands of generations. That's the central promise of the word, that God is your God and that you are his people. And even creation says that. The constancy of creation is evidence of God's faithfulness to his people. We see that in the second half of verse 90 and in verse 91. Because God created everything, everything reflects his faithfulness. That's why the atheist scientist has a hard time getting around the order of creation. That's why the the atheist scientist has has a really hard time explaining why things are so orderly in creation. Because everything else, if it, their theory should result in a very unorderly creation. And yet creation is orderly. Day and night, seasons and everything else happen as a testimony of the faithfulness of God. And all these things, according to verse 91, were created to be his servants. And the regularity of day and night witnesses to the faithfulness of God. And this is a result of, remember what covenant in the Bible tells us? That because of that promise, things would be regular in this life. Then Noah built an ark, an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a smooth aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Not because man or humanity is great, but because God is great. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done while the earth remains. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. Why? This is a sign of the covenant which I made between you, me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I'll set my rainbow on the clouds. And this constancy, this order, this regularity in creation is another testimony of that covenant that God made with himself, displayed in his faithfulness to us, that he's not going to destroy us even though we deserve destruction. Notice that uh, the flood hasn't happened again, not because we've learned our lesson on that first time, but because God chose to spare us, being long-suffering to us, so that we might come to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the established, enduring, settled word has no limits. It tells us all that we are to believe concerning God, concerning ourselves and the world, and addresses all the issues of life. Look what he says in verse 96. 
I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. The New King James Version kind of confuses the matter a little bit here. In its translation, I have seen the consummation of all perfection, which kind of gives the idea that somehow the prophet has a, the psalmist has a vision about the future and saw the end of all perfection. But that's not what the Hebrew here means. The ESV uh, brings more clarity to this verse when it says, I have seen a limit to all perfections. The things that seem to be perfect in our sight, there's a limit to them. They're not really perf- perfect as we think they are, and they are not uh, all sufficient as we might think they are. Everything is limited, but the Word of God extends beyond all that. It's broad. It's sufficient. It covers everything. And Peter tells us that much in 2 Peter chapter 1, that God has given us in His divine power everything that we need for godliness and faith. For godliness and life. The psalmist is telling us that the word of God is sufficient for every issue of faith and practice. Because God himself is sufficient. It is complete. It is broad. It is boundless. And we don't have to look for the answers of life in other places. How sad it is that even the church of Jesus Christ is looking at the secular world for answers that the Bible gives us. Why we're here. Who we are. Are we men or are we women? How do we conduct marriage? How do we raise our children? These are life and faith questions. And yet, we're going somewhere else than the word that has been settled forever in heaven, which is the result of God's covenant with himself, given to us to be sufficient and broad over all things. And yet, the church of Jesus Christ is saying, nope. It's not enough for me. I need the wisdom of men in order to fulfill the designs of God. How silly and foolish that is for us to do that. There are some practical results of, of, of this word being settled in heaven in verses 92 through 95. And the first thing we see is that the word is settled forever because it is a revelation of God's covenant with himself and with us And therefore, it gives us hope. So one of the results of this word being settled forever in heaven is that it gives us hope. Look at verse 92. Unless your law had been my delight, I I would then have perished in my affliction. As it is with most stanzas in this psalm, the psalmist is suffering persecution because of his obedience to the word of God. He describes the wicked as waiting for him so that they can destroy him in verse 95. This is an act of waiting. They are planning to destroy him. There is an act of seeking to do harm to him because of his faithfulness to God. So once again, we find the psalmist afflicted, and yet he is not in despair because the word of God and the promises of God gives him hope. He delights in, the, in it. He delights in the promises of the word of God. He delights in this word that has been settled forever in heaven. Nine times in this psalm, the psalmist tells us that he delights in the law of God. And most of the delighting is done in the context of affliction. He doesn't say, life is great, so I'm delighting in your word, but... The, the word of God, the promises of God, has gotten him through the times of affliction. He delighted deeply and hopefully in the law of God. Several of you have asked me, how much does this psalmist have of the Bible? Well, it's hard to tell. We can just, we, this is likely a post-exilic psalm, which means it was written 
um, somewhere around Nehemiah, Ezra's time. So after Israel was brought back from the Babylonian captivity. So that's kind of the ballpark of that. So what books could they have? They could have the first five books of the Bible. They could have Judges and Ruth. They could have First and Second Samuel. They could have First and Second Kings. They could have Isaiah. They could have Jeremiah, Daniel, Lamentations, some of the Psalms, and that's it. First and Second Chronicles are also post-exilic, uh, likely written the same time as this Psalm was written. That's what he had. That's what got him through the tough times in life. That's the hope he had. Brothers and sisters, we have so much more than the law of God, don't we? We have the entire revelation of God to give us hope so that we can delight in it. The Holy Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, said, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Brothers, sisters, God has spoken to us in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate revelation. He is the word, the final word. And he completed God's word to us. How much more we have than the psalmist ever had. And yet, what he had was enough to show that God is faithful to him, that God is his God, and that he belonged to God, and that carried him through these times of affliction. The forever settled word of God completely revealed to us in the Bible brings comfort to God's people. This this particular stanza, the Lamed stanza, could be thought of as a summary of Isaiah 40 through 43, one of the possible books that this psalmist had. And here we see in the stanza, we see the faithfulness of God through the eyes of the believer. In Isaiah, we see the faithfulness of God through the eyes of God himself. Isaiah 40, remember how Isaiah 40 begins? Begins with that great call from God to the prophet to comfort his people. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your go- is your God. And the prophet is at the, at the loss. He doesn't know, how am I going to comf- comfort my people? And when the prophet asks God what he should say to the people in order to bring comfort to God's people, God tells him to proclaim to God's people that God's word is settled in heaven. In Isaiah 40 verses 6 through 8 we read, the voice cried, the voice said, cry out. That's the voice of the angel, the voice of God. And he said, that's the prophet, what shall I cry? What shall I tell the people? What shall should I comfort them? And cry doesn't mean, hey, means heralding, speaking loudly to the people, calling the people to action. What should I tell them? What do I tell them that they might find comfort? And this is what God tells him. All fresh, all flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. So the things of this life, as lovely as they may be, they're just like the flowers of the field. What does that mean? Well, the grass withers, and the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord 
blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. The things of this life, the most lovely things, the good things of this life, they fade. What's, so where is the comfort? How does, the, how does that passage end? But the word of our God stands forever. That's the comfort. Because in that word, we find that God is our God and that we are his people. So why is this a comfort to God's people? Because it means that God's covenantal promises to be our God is settled forever. As Isaiah 40 continues in 41 and 42 and 43, uh, I, the Lord says to the prophet in Isaiah 41, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So the people he's talking to here in 40, 41, 42, and 43 are the descendants of Abraham. Those that he promised, I'll be your God and you're going to be my people. And God says, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from these furthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Remember Jesus' name? Emmanuel, God with us. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you warm Jacob. Warm, that's one of those words that's hard for me to say. It's W-O-R-M instead of W-A-R-M. So he's not saying, Jacob, you're hot. He's saying, Jacob, you're like, a, like one of those insignificant little creatures that goes in the sand up and down, the, the, the ground up and, and down. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burnt, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And by now, you may be thinking this would be well and good. It would be really comforting if I was part of Israel, if I was a Jew. How is this comforting to me, a Gentile mutt? That's what most of us are, right? A Gentile the Gentile mutt. The answer is this. This is comfort to you because in Christ, you have been brought into the Israel of God and made a true Israelite according to the promise. So the Apostle Paul says in Genesis, not in Genesis, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh, that's who you were, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hand, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, so that's who you were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. No hope. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and made part of the common wealth of Israel. And that's why later on in Galatians, or earlier on chronologically, Paul says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
Isaiah 40 through 43 is as much as about you as it was to the audience of Isaiah in the 8th century BC. Because if you're in Christ, you're part of the commonwealth of Israel, heir to all the promises given to God. And because the word is forever settled, we have life. We see that in verses 93 and 94. I will never forget your precepts for them, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The, the psalmist acknowledges that life eternal, the, the life, eternal life, is found in the Word of God. The same thing that the apostles acknowledge. Remember in John chapter 6, Jesus, uh, that's the end of his second year of ministry. John gives us three years of ministry while the synopsis, the other three Gospels gives us only two years of Jesus' ministry. So John 6 is the end of Jesus' second ministry, uh, year of ministry. For the, that entire year, Jesus had been popular. Crowds were following him. Uh, they, uh, they were being fed. They were being healed. They, Jesus was speaking in parables that they understood. And then Jesus says, unless you die, you can't follow me. I said, What? Yes, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And the crowd said, oh, man, now things are getting weird. We're out of here. And that was the end of Jesus' popularity. Even some of the closest disciples that followed him all that time left him. And then he looks and sees the twelve still sitting there. And he comes to them and asks, aren't you guys going to leave too? And Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. The settled word of God, forever settled in heaven, are the words of life, the very words of Jesus from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So the word of God is forever settled in heaven as the result of God's covenant with himself. That word above all earthly powers has been committed to us in the Bible. And God, because of his covenant faithfulness, has given this word of life to us. What are you going to do about that? What are you doing with that word? Is that word ruling your life? Are you submitting yourself to all that this word says? Or are you ultimately and utterly bored even by the preaching of the very word of life. What are you going to do with this word? A word has been forever settled in heaven, revealed to you by the kindness of God, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. What are you going to do with it? Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that you settled it in eternity past, and it remains true in the eternity future. We thank you for your compassion and kindness and mercy to us in revealing it to us in your word, in the, in the Bible. We pray that we would make it our own and that your spirit would rule over our lives through it. For us in Jesus' name, amen.